of God's word. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay his master, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So the fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. Yet he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Good morning. It's good to see you all here today. And yes, next week, we're going to two services. Yes. But I am thanking God it's not this Sunday. So I only have to preach once. Hmm. Not everyone who ask you questions actually wants answers. Consider the gospel accounts. They highlight two primary types of questioners who came to Jesus. There was an honest seeker, and there was a hardened cynic. Seekers came because they sincerely wanted truth. Nicodemus, prime example. He comes and he asks a great question. How can a person possibly be born again? He was seeking truth, and it was not just the kind of truth that informed him, but would transform him. Even many skeptics can fit into this category, because though they have doubt, they're at least coming with their questions to have their doubts answered. But cynics are completely different. They do not come with their doubts to seek truth. They come to create doubts 
in the minds of others concerning the truth. These are the very kind of cynics who came to Jesus. One after the other, they were called insincere questioners. They were not looking for answers. They were looking to entrap. They were not there to discover truth. They were there to discredit it. Now, folks, sadly, but notably, virtually all of these people were highly religious. Chief priests, scribes, teachers of the religious law. Yet behind virtually all of their questions were malevolent motives. To trip him up, discredit Christ, make him look bad. You see, cynics do not ask you questions to be taught. They ask you questions to make their point. To get in an argument with you often with the hidden agenda of making you look bad, to discredit you, to embarrass you. They're not looking for answers. So the wisdom of Proverbs fits well here. Arguing with a cynic is like arguing with a fool. Don't do it, lest in the process you become like him. I love the wisdom of Crawford Loritz. Arguing with a cynic or a critic is like wrestling with a pig. You may ultimately win, but you're going to get very dirty, and the pig will love it. Exactly. Thus, I find it exceedingly significant and encouraging, yet not all that surprising, that of all the disciples, Jesus chose there was nary a religious leader to be found among them. And the longer I live, may I say to you, my beloved, the more I fully understand why. Because religion, which is essentially trying to do for God, representing God, but not pursuing God, the longer a person lives this way, the more their spirit becomes drenched in self-righteousness and along with it, self-deception. And self-righteousness, I don't know that you've experienced this, but self-righteousness is the toughest pride to penetrate. And if you follow through the Gospels, you'll see it. Just ask Jesus or let Jesus just show you. There are a few wonderful exceptions, but they are very few. It is equally instructive to me and encouraging who Jesus ultimately chose to be his disciples, who, humanly speaking, had so little going for them, especially in that culture. Why would you choose them? This ragtag group of raw young men that had one thing going for them, teachability. They were willing to be taught. And they came to Jesus with many kind of questions, especially Mr. Simon Peter, 
this dude was always about the questions, including this one he asked right from the heart because it gets to the heart. Lord, how many times can a person sin against me and I still forgive them? Seven times? To most Jews in that day, seven times would sound very generous because most of the rabbis in that time thought three. That would be pretty good if you did it for three times. By now, Peter knows Jesus is nothing like the rabbis he's associated ever known. So he's asking him, you seem far more generous, Lord. What's your personal forgiveness limit? Well, the answer had to shock him. And if you've got your Bibles, if you'll go to Matthew chapter 18 today, or in your little scrolly thing, your, your cell phony, all right? Whatever you're using, I'm remembering you, Patty. Okay, so Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22. And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how much shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Understand, understand, I can't imagine. I, Peter's mouth tried to kind of drop. But Jesus was not giving him this number to test his multiplication skills, nor was he giving him this number to have him keep score. No, he was making a much greater point, and we know that point. It's the point of grace. He deliberately exaggerated the amount to teach a life lesson to Peter and about forgiveness and about what it means to live in the power of God's presence and spirit in your life. For the true Christian, forgiveness is freely giving to another what we ourselves have already received. When we do this and as we do this, child of God, we are the ones free. But notice, Jesus, the master teacher, doesn't just give us information and principles. He takes that information and the principle and wraps it into a parable, into a life illustration through stories. A parable is just simply that. It's a life story in the physical realm that helps illustrate a principle in the spiritual realm because he knows this is how we learn, through stories, illustrations that we can get our teeth around. So let's go through this account. Again, follow along with me, beginning at verse 23. And we'll kind of teach this text quickly. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. This would come to roughly 15 million in our day. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me. And I will repay you everything, which was ridiculous because it would take him about 20 years to earn one talent, and he owed 10,000. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him 
and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, basically is one day's wage. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, same thing that this slave did to his master, have patience with me and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should not you also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even if I had mercy on you? This is the main point of the passage. And his Lord moved with anger now, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father do also to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Of course, the king in this parable represents Jesus Christ. The slave in verse 24, weighed down with more debt than he could possibly ever pay, represents each one of us. Each one of us who've come to faith in Christ have come the same way. Weighed down with this immense personal debt, none of us could pay. None of us could satisfy. We come in the same way in humble repentance. We admit we're destitute. We're desperate here. Lord Jesus, I've so wronged you. I've so sinned against you. Thank you, Lord, that you who knew no sin, you became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in you. Thank you for doing this for us. Thank you for doing this for me. And right then, through that transaction, in that moment, we're forgiven fully. Right then, we receive eternal life, present tense. Right then, we no longer will come into judgment because Jesus was our judgment. And right then, you have passed out of death into life. And your sins will be counted against you no more. Thus, you can probably guess who the beloved fellow slave is in verse 28. All those people who have wronged us. The lies they told, the dishonor and disrespect they showed you. The promises they broke. Some egregious promises. Covenants they broke. The things they have stolen from you, including your reputation or your dignity. The things that they did to abuse you, to backstab, 
to betray. The take-home, take-to-heart point of this verse, of this passage, in verse 32 and 33, Jesus is saying, because I have forgiven you, you have the capacity, and I will enable you for your sake, for the cause of the gospel, to forgive those who have wronged you. I'm going to ask this of you. I'm going to require this of you. But I will never force this on you. The choice is yours. God never forces us to do his will. He entreats us. He implores us. He conjoles us. He convinces us by his spirit, but he will never force it. It's always our choice. He made us free moral agents. It's for our own good, for our own growth, to his ultimate glory. To forgive from the heart is the pathway to freedom. There is no other choice that will bring you there. There's no other pathway that will take you there. This parable in itself presents a magnificent microcosm of the Christian life. The Christian life, your life in Christ, was never meant to live like some spiritual container of God's grace but to be a conduit of it. Not just to fill us up, but to continually flow out of us. So here Jesus is simply describing what he said before. Freely have I given you. Freely have you received. Freely now give. The more we allow God's grace, love, and forgiveness to flow through our lives, Guess who's the main beneficiary? It grows all the more in us. And it feels inside like freedom. It feels inside like the realities of the Spirit of God working in us. But it is the unforgiving Spirit that quenches it. The Spirit of God is grieved and it shuts down the flow of God's blessing on your life. The world's worst prison, my friend, is the prison of an unforgiving heart. What is exactly at the root of an unforgiving spirit in it's in verse 28. If you have it in your Bible, it's circled in mine. I would have you circle it. Payback. The desire to get even, to punish, to hurt the person for hurting us. And this is where it always begins, the payback in our thought life, where we mentally nurture the hurt, the unfairness, the consequences we are suffering. And mentally, we do two things. We replay the conversations we have had with them. And then we play the ones we would like to have with them. Let me replay that conversation again. I should have said, I will say, and next time. And we come up with these marvelous arguments 
to make our point. And when we do so, we become total victim. And they're the total vic villain. I love the honesty of Anne Graham Lotz, wounded by God's people. This is what she says. I often rehearse imaginary confrontations with my wounders, honing my words like knives on flint until they're not only sharp, but they seem brilliant to me. Of course, as my words get sharper, I find myself getting angrier and angrier, more justified in my self-pity or in the plotting of revenge. Even if I never speak these words out loud, they still shred my peace because they keep my focus on them and on what they did to me. And I'm going to make them pay. Over time, it will affect our spirit with hardness and heaviness and a lack of joy that is tangible. It will come out in negative attitudes. It'll come out in sarcasm, cynicism, and criticism. And if we are around the person that we're angry at, it'll come out in punishing behavior, either silently, coldness, withdrawal, pouting, or open attack, sarcastic comments, acts of revenge. The more we live this way, nurturing offenses, storing up re resentments, this is what the Bible says is payback living. This is what it's like to grab the guy, buy his shirt, shake him, and say, pay back. And it, did you notice what life awaits us? It's in verse 34 and 35. It's inner torture. This is serious business. An unforgiving heart leaves us with a punishing spirit. And the more we do that, the more we rehearse and rehash in our minds or to our sympathetic friends how we've been wronged, we lose. And by the way, if you're one of those sympathetic friends who you have a bitter person who's coming to you complaining about the same person, the same thing with just different slants to it, it's, you're not helping them. If you just get to clean outs and cry with somebody, maybe initially, but you have to ask that Christian, especially, what are you doing with that pain? How can I help you with that? How can I help you along the road of forgiveness? If you just listen, you're going to help them go deeper in the pit of bitterness. Here's a verse to put on your mirror, on your computer. <laughs> On your friends, a friend on your friends. Don't put it. You can put it on your friends. Yes, put it on your fridge, or better yet, on the bulletin board of your mind. It's Proverbs eleven seventeen. No, I don't have it on the screen, so you may want to write it down. It's a winner, winner, chicken dinner. You nurture your own soul when you are kind. May I repeat that? You nurture your own soul when you are kind. 
but you destroy yourself to the extent that you're cruel, that you're punishing. That kind of gets to the heart of it, doesn't it? What then are the evidences of inner resentment or of a payback attitude? Um, there are several. Let me give them to you. I think there are five. First one is a critical and cynical spirit. Here's what it looks like. It's quick to find fault with others, but slow to ever confess what is wrong with their own heart. Let me tell you, again, how we are made is wonderful. How we are made. God made us in his image. And when he made man in his image, you notice that man, separate from the animals, is a worshiper. He's made to worship someone greater than himself. He knows this. Someone out there is greater than me. And it's, it's in his nature to worship something. He's meant to worship God. From the beginning, we were meant to worship God. Part of the worshiping nature in us is to be a confessor. To confess who we are and to confess who God is. It's a, to be a confessor. To be confessor of our own shortcomings, our own faults, failings. But here's what happens. The more or the less we are honestly confessing our own stuff, the more we automatically will turn the spotlight onto others to confess their faults. And quite often, over time, the less we are honest with our own sin issues, the faults we tend to find in others are even more true of us. The psychologists call this projection. Jesus calls this spiritual blindness. It's the log and the speck. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. And it's like, here's how it works. you got this log in your eye that's blinding you. But on one end, that log becomes a microscope. Cranking down to see every little speck of criticism in someone else. But on the backside, it blinds you to your own issues. Create spiritual blindness. The second and a close cousin of this is a critical spirit. Of, it is, to a critical spirit is a prideful spirit. Failing to properly clear our own conscience when we ourselves have wronged another. We may admit we have a sour attitude or a nasty one or a, a said some cutting accusatory words. But then watch this and be careful of this. Does some excuse follow? Well, it's because of what you said to me. How you treated me. It's my job. The stress there. It's my parents. It's my past. When that is the case, all we are doing is confessing this. We're confessing that my circumstances are my problem, not my heart. That if I just had cooperation with you, I wouldn't have this issue. And that is deceiving ourselves. We become like beloved Lucy in the Peanuts cartoon. She and Charlie Brown are out on a star-filled night, and they're gazing into the vastness of that sky. And finally, Lucy, in a pondering moment, asks, I wonder, Charlie Brown, why do you think God put us on this earth? Charlie Brown gives that a 
gives that a think for a bit. And he says, I think God put us on this earth to make other people happy. At which point Lucy gets this scowl and says, then somebody's not doing their job. (laughs) And we're not going to be as obvious as Lucy. I hope not. But in our minds we are. It's someone else's fault. They're not doing their job. How do you know when there's just an insincere apology or just a quick admittance? What does it sound like? Okay, let me give you a few. Well, I'm sorry. I won't do it again just to get it over with. Well, I'm sorry you feel that way. In other words, I was not really wrong in what I said. I'm just sorry that you are so overly sensitive. Or, I'm sorry, but with some excuse attached. You're such a jerk. Or the kids at the job, my mother, your father, the weather, whatever. Some excuse. Explain, excuse, dismiss. Folks, admittance is never repentance. It may be a first baby step toward it, but admittance is never repentance. I am sadly blown away by the Christians who can't and won't admit they are wrong. Other beyond quick admittance. I am saddened because I work with so many of pastors who can't or won't do this. Present company accepted. Not this one. (laughs) But just so common, and it breaks my heart. Where there is a work of the Spirit, you come like you came to Christ with humility and seek forgiveness from the heart. What is glaringly missing is taking appropriate ownership for actions to say, I was wrong for what I said. I have been wrong for how I've reacted. I've been cold to you. I've been punitive toward you, whatever it is, with no excuses. I know it hurt you. Some emotional identification. I know it hurt you. I know you felt rejected. I know you felt alone. I know you felt never understood. Some emotional identification. Then would you please forgive me? Imagine if we did this honestly within the relationship of our churches. In short order, there would be revival. Because you're sowing humility. You're sowing the Spirit's work by every honest confession like that. Imagine the effect it would have on marriages. When we demonstrate that kind of humility, how life-giving would that be? Imagine the relational walls that have been building up for years to come crumbling down. Over four decades of marriage counseling, I can tell you from experience that many biblically rooted marriage counselors will tell you the same thing. The most common root behind a relational distance in marriages is a bitter one. 
there's a bitter root to it. From relational hurts and disappointments, broken promises, or feeling controlled, neglected, dishonored, not known, it could be a number of things, but resentments build and drip by drip by drip. There's this reservoir of resentment that builds up on the inside and invisible walls, visible relational walls, co-op on the outside, and they're married, but they're distant. And the more it does, and the longer it goes on, that couples lose hope. Without genuine forgiveness, a marriage goes and grows distant. A wise marriage counselor, I love what he said, because I always hear marriage is, marriage is all about commitment. He said, it's true, but marriage is two parts commitment and eight parts forgiveness. When you're truly committed, you do work at forgiveness in your marriage. Christian couples who grow healthy in their relationship are the ones who live at the foot of the cross. And that's what this is about. The key that gets us out of the prison of bitterness and resentment is the same key. It's the cross. It's going back to what Jesus did for us and appropriating it in the moment toward the person who's wronged us. The third characteristic of a bitter spirit is an ungrateful spirit. And this is where you just have high expectations of others and very low appreciation for what they've done. High expectations where they coulda, woulda, shoulda, but low expectations to even see the things that they've done. The more the spirit works, in our lives, it completely reverses. We become this person of appreciation and gratitude and encouragement, and we have lower expectations. Not that we don't have them, but we're giving those to Jesus to focus on my role is to be having a high appreciation and not have high expectations. High expectations are just premeditated bitternesses. The fourth characteristic is an unsubmissive attitude toward authority. Now, understand, I am not saying, and I would not, uh, I would not postulate that every person who struggles with authority is bitter. But I will tell you, without question, every habitually bitter person is not under authority. And here's why. Bitterness at its core results from the choice to take my own vengeance and in doing so, Romans 12, 20 says, God's telling, no, 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 that's my job. That's not your job. He explicitly says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. I only know how to do it best, perfectly, and in the right time. But in a vengeful heart, a giving spirit essentially says, no, I'm not coming under you, Lord. I'm going above you. I'm taking this over. A bitter spirit is always fueled by an independent spirit. And it will not go well with us when that happens. Because the more, again, the more we take over God's job, guess what happens? We get verse 34 and 35. The vengeance gets placed on us again. Fifth characteristic and final one is they are easily offended. Hurt people hurt people and are easily offended by people. Christian, (laughs) 
The less you forgive others who wounded you, no matter when it was, no matter how far back it was, no matter if you've even buried them decades ago, if you're still living with the wound unforgiven, you'll tend to live out of that wound and react out of that wound of your past in your present. It'll trigger it. You'll emotionally be triggered just like you were back then. Again, even if the person is long past, even the, long ago has been out of your life, they still, because of your emotional focus, they still have you in bondage. They still have a grip on you from the grave. It's a bondage, a ball and chain. Again, the worst kind of prison. What then is forgiveness? Verse 27, I, again, gets right to the heart of it. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. I'll go through this quickly. Forgiveness sounds like this. It is a choice to release. It's a choice to release the person and the offenses they committed against us to God. Lord, I'm releasing my right to revenge to you for you to judge righteously. It is releasing our right to any revenge on our part. Because again, we're owning that isn't our right. And in the end, it releases us and frees us in our own spirit. We become the huge beneficiaries of our own forgiving act. What then is the process of forgiving? First, to confess your need to forgive to God and to yourself. So, you know, to start the process, we always have to stop. It begins with stop. Stop the grudge carrying. Stop the rehashing, the repeating, the rehearsing of the offenses to yourself. Like, stop the victimization justification. Look what they did to me. Look what they're still doing to me. Look what they said about me. How they betrayed me. How their sin has affected me. I'm the victim here. No child of God we may be victimized, but Jesus was the victim. He took the cost of that sin. Jesus Christ died for our rights when he died for our wrongs. So it's not the other person's fault that we want to pay him back. It's our own problem. It's our own sin. Because in light of the cross, again, we are failing to extend the grace God has so freely extended us. And that's on us. Second, choose to forgive. It's a choice. And I love what Neil Anderson says. It's so right, so true, <laughs> and it's so helped me, all right? It's an act of your will. You will not feel like it. <laughs> Amen.
The pride in you will want, not want to do it. The enemy is working not to have you want to do it. It is a choice you won't feel like making. Don't wait until you feel like it because you'll never get there. You'll never get there. Happy hearts follow holy choices. But listen, holy choices are not easy. Right? The prayer to forgive someone is so simple, but it needs to be sincere. It must engage your heart. Lord, I choose to forgive this person for what they did to me, and you name it. Be specific, even though it made me feel. It's so important to put down some emotional pain words. It's good to cry. Man, more tears, the better. Feel the pain. Put down the emotional pain words. That will make the, the forgiveness more complete. How did they affect you? How did that sin affect you when they abandoned you and ignored you? Write down per offense and then per emotional pain it caused. And then say, Lord, I choose not to hold anything against them any longer. Please work in their lives. They might come to know you. Pray for them specifically at that moment. And then afterward, you can be guaranteed of this. If you forgive someone from the heart, Satan's going to bring stuff back up into your mind. This is what you do. Pray for them. Let it be a prayer prompt. When they bring it up, he's going to... When you begin to think about the things again and they will happen, maybe a little, something new will happen, start praying for them. And over time, this is what's going to happen. You're going to begin to view the person through eyes of compassion rather than contempt. You'll know when you've forgiven somebody in your life now, when you can view them through your eyes of compassion for them rather than contempt of them. And you can begin to see how they're hurting rather than how much they hurt you. This is when you know you're free. And internally, you're going to be a different person. There's going to be a level of freedom you probably haven't had in a long time. As we come to this table this morning, we are celebrating a new, a fresh, remembering Jesus Christ paid it all. All to him I owe. He who knew no sin became sin for me taking my sin upon himself, that I might be made forever the righteousness of God in him. Now, as we pray, serve as if you will come. In this quiet time before God, brothers and sisters, take these moments for any needed confession before taking the elements. This may include confessing an unforgiving spirit to the Lord. Lord Jesus, indeed, all to you we owe. And the sin had left a crimson stain. You've washed it white as snow. May we live a life bowed down. That as we remember your sacrifice, that we so submit to walk in your steps. 
in those areas where you've asked us to sacrifice. And we pray this in the risen one's name. Amen.